so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. In today's society, children will grow up with far more access to technology than previous generations. Each piece of art that they will come in contact with tells a certain story. With this in mind, how can parents use the gifts of story and song as a way of shaping families and their children? At our national conference, Russell Moore led a panel discussion with Sally Lloyd-Jones, Andrew Peterson, Randall Goodgame, and Phil Vischer on what role the arts can play in family life. Let's listen to their discussion now. I thought we would just go ahead and get started with a question for everybody. So, to lay some groundwork about the power of the imagination. We take it for granted that imagination and creativity are synonymous with childhood. Why is that? Why for kids and not for adults? And what can we learn from them? I think it's very connected with wonder and how small children are. They're very small in a big, huge world. And I think that sense of wonder comes from their knowing that they're... You know, when a child does a drawing or something, they can't really control their pen and they're all over the place. So everything goes into this drawing. It's all hard. And I think a child brings humility and fragility and wonder to everything they do because they have a right-sized view of themselves. Yeah, but for, for a child, everything is new. You know, we hit a point where, yeah, seen it, done it, I got to get to work. And, and kids haven't gotten it. You know, kids are professional learners. It's what they do. So just the joy of a blank piece of paper. And people have done studies where they, you know, put a blank piece of paper and crayons in front of a seven-year-old and they go to town put the same thing in front of a 14-year-old, and they sit in fear. Mm. You know, something has happened where now they realize everything I do is going to be judged mm. by my peers. Mm. And that hasn't struck a six-year-old, hasn't mm. struck a five-year-old. So it's, that, it's almost a naivete to the potential for judgment, that creativity, <laughs> risk-taking for a five-year-old has no apparent downside. Mm-hmm. For a 12-year-old, it does. For a 40-year-old, it yeah. does. Mm. So we have to unlearn yes. what, we've, what we've learned yes. over Why these years. Why are we years? so much more afraid of our peers than a 5-year-old is? Mm. Kind of piggybacking on that, how would you all connect creativity and imagination that's innate, that we, that we lose and then have to gain back? How would you connect that to being made in God's image? Uh, one of the things that sort of is probably going to stay with me for a long time is talking about that sense of, of tension that God has given. I think about in Galatians, in the fullness of time, uh, he, he delivered his son. And so the, the fact that God has this story and God is creative and creative in 
in, in a multitude of ways. The manifold wisdom of God, as Paul says, we see little flashes of that in us and, and are able to, to wonder when we see flashes of it in other people blessing us. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, too, that I loved what you guys were talking about when you were talking about God's playfulness, the fact that there are fish that were just now discovering the exuberance of his imagination, that he would, mm-hmm. the world would be teeming the way that it does with things that don't really serve much purpose. You know, they're just fun. Um, Nipples for men. <laughs> <laughs> we were all thinking it, but I I'm glad you said it. <laughs> uh, I know. But no, that the, there's this. Uh, <laughs> I don't have any questions about that. <laughs> what was the question? I don't know. So, <laughs> but there's this sense of playfulness that I think we forget about as a part of the character of who God is, right? That it's we we tend as we grow old, we begin to project our own tiredness and weariness on Him. And Chesterton in in uh, Orthodoxy talks about uh, the way that a kid, uh, like you know, if you you throw them up in the air, they say, do it again. You throw them up in the air, but we get really tired of it. The kid doesn't. And uh, Chesterton says that, uh, talks about how God says to the son every morning, do it again, do it again. Uh, his, uh, his delight in his creation is never ending. And I think that that's something that we, we kind of lose. Mm-hmm. He also says that we've sinned and grown old and that our heavenly father is younger than us, yes. which then goes back to, there's a youngness to God and we get old and you know, in a bad way, mm-hmm. in a sort of, maybe in that way that we're more self-conscious, whereas a child isn't self-conscious. No. I, th- I would say they're more God-conscious because they're just little. Mm-hmm. They're more open to the wonder of everything. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of playfulness and wonder, uh, some of these questions will be just for individual, each one of you, but then feel free to jump in. Andrew and I, we wrote some songs for Veggie Tales together that Phil, you voiced some parts of, you know. Oh, did you? Yes, as a matter of fact. <laughs> you knew that, didn't you? Okay. And uh, you've, you've written your own children's songs, um, but you didn't have to. You, that's not what you usually do. Why? Tell us some of the reasons why you have written music for kids in the past. Well, I can tell you that you and I started writing songs for kids in the past because Randall and I used to go to the same church. Um, and uh, we, would, we would drop our kids off at the nursery at the same time. We would bump into each other kind of at the, that moment, and one time you said, hey, I just made up this funny song for my kid last night, and you sang it to me, and I was like, I could do better than that. So the next week, <laughs> I was like, oh, Randy, this is so weird, but I just happened to write one. I just, there's this song there. So it, it was like game on. And so every week we kept trying to one up. So it wasn't some noble reason. I'm sorry. It was just <laughs> trying to one up each other. Well, it, you wrote songs for your kids, lullabies, long before that. I did. That. Yeah. I just, uh, I, well, song, it's a, it's a way of marking time. That's one of the, 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 the kinds of songs that I usually write singer-songwriter stuff, that it tends to be storytelling stuff that marks a moment in our parenthood or in our childhood, whatever it may be. Um, I don't know how to write about anything other than what's just kind of going on. And so for the kids, I just really wanted to mark those moments. And songs mean a lot to me. So I think in some ways there's, there are a few things more precious in the world than for somebody to make you something mm-hmm. and say, this is for you. Um, and so that's, that's all I knew to give my kids. Yeah. yeah. You know, it makes me think of when our kids give us 
what looks like nothing, a little picture that means so much to them. Mm -hmm. uh, Sally, I've heard you talk about that before, how this is their, to, to them, this is just as important as a Monet, right? Mm -hmm. They don't know the difference. They made it. Sally, I've told you before how we use your Jesus Storybook Bible at home for our family devotions. Whenever we do home church on Sundays, which just means sleeping in and having donuts, <laughs> uh, we get out the Jesus Storybook Bible and we read at least one, usually two. My 10-year-old son, Ben, always, no matter how many we've read, he always says, can we read another one? And how do you say no to the Bible, right? <laughs> but uh, why do you think the Jesus Storybook Bible has resonated so deeply, not only for children, but for adults like me? I think um, what God, we touched on this, but that God talks to us as his children because that's who we are. And that's a language of love and the heart. I think that has, in a simple book, it comes across very clearly in the children's book because you can capture the entire plot line of the Bible in one sitting, which is hard to do. You know, if you try and read the, through the whole Bible, that's very hard to do. So I think that's part of it, that you, you capture this plot line in one sitting. But this heart language, I think it, it comes by those lions that guard us. And it, you hear the, the, the story in a way you haven't heard it before. And it was what we were talking about. It, it ambushes you because it's a new way of hearing it. And I think that's probably partly why it responds, why, you know, God can use it for adults. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's what C.S. Lewis said. A children's book that's only good for a child is not a good children's book in the slightest. Mm -hmm. You know, and Madeleine Engel said the same thing. If she wants to write a book that's too hard for adults, she writes it for children. Right. So there's a sense in which if you respect children and you don't um, patronize and make it stupid, thinking that somehow that's going to reach a child, but of course children are way too smart, they know that, they can sniff that out. Mm -hmm. But if you treat them with respect and you work harder to understand what you're talking about so that you can make it clear to a little child, then I think you're going to capture the adults. You won't be able to help it. It's really true. The gospel is simple. Yeah. And we need it simple, don't we? We get mm -hmm. so com completely complicated and, you know, we, like we were talking about, we forget that God loves us. Well, mm -hmm. you know, we have to be reminded of that all the time. So God I, will use anything like that. I think, too, sometimes hearing uh, children's stories of the Bible, for those of us who grew up uh, in the church and have a, had a positive experience in the church, there's a sense of remembering uh, what, it, what it is to be uh, raised in the, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to remember the time when you were uh, so vulnerable, obviously vulnerable, and hearing the word of God in a way that sort of recovers that. And I think that vulnerability and creativity come together uh, so often. When I just think about every, everybody on this panel, the things that God has done through you, most often it's through vulnerability. I mean, Andrew, of uh, uh, dancing in the minefields and, mm -hmm. and uh, the, the songs of yours that have meant uh, the most to me, and they all mean a lot to me, but the ones that have meant the most to me are the ones where probably as you're writing them, you're probably thinking, eh, should, I, should I disclose this? And I think that's true for creativity mm -hmm. generally. Um, and I think hearing children's stories sometimes reminds us how, how frail we actually are, frail mm -hmm. children of dust mm -hmm. in a way that can God can use that. Yeah. Well, changing gears for just a second. Phil, VeggieTales, enormous success. 
uh, in your book, Me, Myself, and Bob, which is awesome, by the way. Mm-hmm. Bought it, read it, loved it. You talk a bit about some things that you might have done differently in hindsight. But what I was wondering is, what are some things, as you look back on it, you think VeggieTales did well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we were at an interesting time. VeggieTales came out in 1993, and it, and it was... It was a point where I think pop culture had become cynical, mm. you know, where everything was a joke. It was, we, we moved to Beavis and Butthead, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the adolescent that's constantly laughing. As C.S. Lewis said that, that, that uh, sarcasm, which he called flippancy, is always assuming a joke has been made even when one has it. Mm. You know, assuming that this is a joke even mm. when it isn't. And our culture was in that moment where, you know, I mean, my generation grew, my dad grew up with Johnny Carson, who was dry and sardonic. I grew up with David Letterman, who was just sarcastic, mm. you know. Sar- and we grew up with comedians that didn't take anything seriously. And we got South Park, and we got Beavis and Butthead, and we got Family Guy. And so we had a culture at that moment developed a mistrust of earnestness. Ooh which is why so many parents disliked Barney the Dinosaur. Because mm-hmm. he never seemed to be joking. He's like serious all the time. There must be something wrong with that dinosaur. Keep <laughs> <laughs> away from my children. You know? and, and I think because I, I grew up on David Letterman, but I also grew up in Sunday school. I wanted to bring the two together. I remember thinking, you know, I want to make something that's somewhere between Mr. Rogers and Ren and Stimpy. <laughs> it's like, what's halfway in the middle? Happy, you know? happy, joy, joy. Yeah, I described it I, I described it at one point. I, I wanted to create Billy Graham and David Letterman's love child. <laughs> and I, I, ended, I think I ended up describing it as, can I say that? Am I allowed to say that? Oh, yeah. You've already done men with nipples. What happened? <laughs> one of them is a Southern Baptist, right? Um, I described it at one point as reverent irreverence. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how can we take something seriously? How can we say there is sacred in the world, but yet not take ourselves seriously? Mm. You know, and as Christians, we tend to take ourselves so seriously, especially when we're teaching small children. And this is serious stuff. But there's got to be a balance. There's got to be, let's figure out what's sacred, draw a line around it. Mm-hmm. And then everything else, <laughs> go nuts. You know, and it was, you know, I think that was an unusual thing that caught people off guard, and it made them feel like they could enter into the sacred because it was carried on a wave of Monty Python references. So that the serious preacher that's just serious all the time, to me, he's the same, that's the same, he's got the same problem as Barney, who's just uh, sincere all the time, or, or seems sincere all the time, because neither one of them are really sincere, because what sincere means is when I'm sad, I tell you I'm sad. Mm-hmm. When I'm happy, I'll tell you I'm happy. And that's what I got from VeggieTales, was it was sincere. Mm-hmm. Bob was sincere, and when he was frustrated, he would let people know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I always said Bob the Tomato was, was a frustrated Mr. Rogers. <laughs> he, he wanted to be Mr. Rogers, because Mr. Rogers had that preternatural call, you know, that zen-like now, everything's great in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. all the time, always great. The trolleys always run on time. <laughs> Puppets are always where they're supposed to be. 
And, and so I, I kind of envisioned in my head, uh, Bob the Tomato grew up watching Mr. Rogers. He said, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to do. And he finally gets his own TV studio. He finally gets his own show and nothing goes right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Bob the Tomato. He's a, he's a frustrated Mr. Rogers. Yeah. There's something about the, the sincerity that is appealing to me. Well, keeping moving forward, Russell, help me understand. I know I'm not alone when I come home from church, and what I remember from the sermon was a story. Mm-hmm. Always my favorite parts of this sermons. Mm-hmm. So help me understand the storytelling dynamics of the Bible. Why is it significant that God revealed himself through the power of a story? Well, I think because a story, a story situates us. Uh, it, it sort of uh, it sees us changing uh, over time is, is one part of it. I think the other part of it is you mentioned, I thought you were going to say, when you said, when I come back from a service, one of the things that I, I remember is a song. Because often it's, uh, it's a story or it's a, or it's a song or often a combination of them. And I find, we, we've talked to, about stories, songs, God is able to use songs often to get behind my cynicism and self-protection uh, in ways that I don't expect because they, they just reach at a, a deeper level. Uh, and so when, when I hear a song that meant something to me at a particular moment in my life, mm-hmm. it just immediately puts you narratively there. Mm-hmm. You, you feel as though you're there again, but at the same time, you're not there. You're able to look back and say, here's how God has brought me through. And so I think that the storytelling and the song, uh, the song singing together come together in a way that, that reminds us that God is behind us and God is in front of us. So I think of, I was, I was reading the other day in Isaiah where God says to his people, you know, I brought you out of Egypt. And when I brought you out of Egypt, you had to run and, and make haste and you had, to, you had to take all the stuff that you could. When I bring you out of exile, you're going to walk and I'm going to be in front of you, and I'm going to be your rear guard. I'm going to be behind you. And I think that stories show us that, that this is, this is a God that we can trust in the moment. This is a God we could trust in years past, and this is a God we can trust in the future. Mm. Yeah, that makes me think of what Andrew was saying about how songs mark time. Mm-hmm. They uh, influence the way we rem- remember things. Well, they sure do in the Bible, if you go through the Psalms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's when David was in the cave. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's when yeah. David was running from Saul. Oh, that's mm-hmm. when David was really sad. Yeah. He did that a lot. So uh, this question is for Andrew. Can you talk about the role that art and creativity played in your family as you and Jamie raised your three awesome kids? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> sure. Well, the... the I was very self-conscious about pushing music on my children. Um, I, w- I didn't want them to resent it in any way. And so, but at the same time, I really wanted them to love music like I love music. So I would always just be kind of like, you know, you guys don't have to take lessons. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to play piano. But did you notice that I put a piano in your room last <laughs> night? <laughs> uh, and I'm, I think that was kind of how we, we handled a lot of those things. We would just leave stuff out. Um, make it as easy as possible for them to happen upon a guitar or a piano. One of the things that, like, uh, I'm, I'm weirdly offended by any piano where the key lid is covered. Like, I, I go through and I open them up every time. Because in our house, and maybe your house is the same way, like, you can't walk past the piano without going, bing, bong, bong, bong. 
And then you'll be like, well, that was cool. And you kind of turn around and you start kind of poking around. And so I think that like, if you create an environment like that, where your children will happen upon the, 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 their innate creativity, because that's one of my soapboxes. I probably talk about it too much. I'm really, uh, kind of tweaks me a little bit. Every time I hear somebody talk about creatives or like, Oh, I'm a creative. I just want to be like, no, everybody's creative. Um, we are all made in God's image. We are all made with this compulsion to not only create, but to delight in what we have made. Right. Um, sometimes, when you make something, most of the time, what I, the songs I write, I finish and I'm like, meh. Every now and then I'm like, hey, it, it was good. Right? <laughs> so I think every time that happens, you have this little, little glimpse of, oh, that's right. I am made in God's image. I do walk around this world. It's like God, Tolkien coined the word subcreation uh, in this essay he wrote where he talks about how God is the creator with a capital C and that we are all sub-creators. We're little creators. It's like God made the world, spoke it into being, delighted in what he made, and he made us and said, now go and do likewise. Go speak worlds into being. Go make things and delight in what you've made. And so as much as possible, we tried uh, in our family to, to foster that. And the thing is, my wife isn't, she would never call herself a creative or an artist. You know, she doesn't think of herself that way at all. Um, she, the only CD she's ever bought was the Titanic soundtrack. <laughs> and that was because of Leonardo DiCaprio, not even the music. And, but, but, she, uh, but if you come over to our house, it always smells good. She's got really good taste. She puts the, she's always rearranging the furniture. You know, like every week the couch is in a different angle. And that's the image of God. She is creative and so. she's taught dozens of kids how to play the piano yes that's true but she doesn't really like piano <laughs> she's hilarious in so many ways yeah. well sally we know the bible tells a compelling story but if you've been to sunday school after a while it becomes a very familiar one is it a challenge to continue to tell the stories of scripture in ways that are compelling hmm Yes, I think it is. I, I would say the first thing, the most important thing to me is, is it reminds me of what um, Robert Frost said, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. <laughs> Unless it moves you, you can't move anyone else with that story. So the first job is to let the story melt your heart. Mm. And out of that, then, you stand a chance of, of the spirit using you to convey that to someone else. And in my business, in children's books, we talk about, in a picture book, for instance, where you've got a story told in two languages of an illustration and, and words, what makes that book great, which what distinguishes it from maybe sentiment, is something called heart. We talk about heart. And to me, that's what you're after. In any retelling, you have to get to the heart. And when you're retelling a Bible story and you're looking for Jesus in that story, say it's in the Old Testament, you're probably going to have lots of possible readings of that one story. Like Jonah, you can, you can find lots of ways to find Jesus. So you have to choose the one way because you can only do one. This is my experience in mm. the Jesus story of the Bible. I could do one facet. So you choose the one that moves you because then you'll do a better job. That's, that's something I found helpful. Thank you. Uh, Phil, following up on that a bit, you and Sky and Christian on your podcast, the Phil Fisher podcast, which I also listen to. Yes, on which, which is awesome. <laughs> you guys, uh, you talk about current events and Christian culture and stuff. 
What kind of music and art, kind of putting you on the spot here. Oh, boy. But uh, have you heard about, in all of your podcasting, that uh, is available or emerging right now that impresses you? What's out there that we're missing? Uh, or what, if there's nothing like that that you can think of, what do you wish you saw more of? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are s- stories that have redemption in them, you know, and they can be, it can be a Christian film from a, from a, a Christian filmmaker or author, or it can be a Wes Anderson film, you know, the, the Royal Tenenbaums is a wonderful story of redemption. Um, the Aquatic Life of Steve Zissou, you know, story of redemption. You can find stories of redemption all over the place. I, I, what frustrates me is the amount of commercial storytelling where there's really no heart behind it to show a healing. Mm. You know, in, in, in my mind, every good story, something that is broken will be healed and something will have to die to make it happen. Mm. That's every great film. You know, every, like what? Even, you know, the Jungle Book, Blue the Bear has to die so that Mowgli can be healed and be a human again. Now he doesn't really die because it's a Disney film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just pretending. Right. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but, but that's what I love. It's, the, it's redemptive storytelling. Uh, uh, music, there, there's, there's not a lot that I really love that's on Christian radio. I have to say, because they don't give them, they don't let them go slow and deep. They have to stay light and bubbly. Um, but Audrey Assad, uh, Michael Gunger, you know, uh, this guy, I love this guy. He, I was at the concert at the CBA convention where he premiered. Sit, I was sitting in the room with four of my friends, and he sang two songs just with his acoustic guitar, walked out. He was like 12 years old. He sang two <laughs> songs with his acoustic guitar, and the four of us looked at each other, and we all had tears in our eyes. Yeah, he is so young and has such a heart. And now he's so old and still has such a heart. It just gets better. But that's like, you know, I get the same thing from reading Dallas Willard. You know, it's just the heart and you just want to cry. So that's what I love. I'm not a a great collector of art or a great collector of of stories. But when I find something redemptive, even if it's from a surprising source, it doesn't have to be from a a Christian storyteller. It just has to be from an honest storyteller. Mm -hmm. Uh, I find that very compelling. I love, uh, you know, the Coen brothers and and True Grit and their use of leaning on the everlasting arms all throughout that film. It's just amazing when, when people are honest the gospel pops up mm. in strange ways, even when they don't know it. And, and I love looking for that. Yeah. So I was, it kind of leads up to my next question. I was about to ask about, you hear a lot we talk about in these circles. There's a lot of art out there that isn't good. There's a lot of Christian art that maybe isn't good. Um, Morally or technically? Well, that's what I was going to ask is, how do we know good art from bad art? Um, I would hesitate to call Christian art uh, from, some, some from non-Christian art, because unless you're painting a little cross at the bottom, you really shouldn't be able to tell. But how, how do we discern what's good and what's not good when it comes to art? This is for everybody. Well, I, love, I, I have to quote C.S. Lewis, because he said, there's no such thing as Christian cookery. There's either good cookery or bad cookery. Right. You know, and... When God made trees, he didn't make Christian trees, he made beautiful trees. And mm. the job of a tree is to do its job of being a tree really well. So I think the question is, we, we, we've talked, it's like, is it true? 
Mm. Is it telling me the truth? Is what, uh, when I go to see a film or something, I'm not thinking, is this Christian, is it not Christian? I'm listening for redemption and truth. And if I hear that, then I know it's great. So that's, yeah. that's what yeah. I look for. And I think you have to separate, sometimes you have to separate quality from craft mm-hmm. and recognize this is a good story. This person has not developed their craft very far. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. You know, and you can kind of honor the effort. Mm-hmm. Good try. Their next one will be better in craft, but it was still, it was an honest expression of their heart. So, you, you know, you can forgive a lot of craft mm-hmm. if there's honesty in the heart. On the other hand, when you see a lack of sincerity, you know, or when you see someone who's trying to manipulate the audience to, to an outcome, it doesn't matter how good the craft is, that's, that's not art. And I think also, sometimes we don't, see what art is going to do and where it's going to go. So I mean, I, when I was a teenager, I went to a lot of Petra concerts. And many people, uh, many people here wouldn't be familiar with Petra. We were kind of a, a Christian sort of hair metal band uh, in, the, in the 80s. And I hadn't listened to them in, in, a, in a long time. And I had a student with me. I, I mentioned something about Petra. He's one of my students. And he said, I've never heard of Petra. And I said, oh, you guys. So I put in all of these Petra songs. And he finished listening to it. And he said, you know, I'm just realizing here how much of your theology comes from <laughs> Petra songs. And I, I sat there for a minute and said, I guess that's right. Wow. You know, I, I can go back and just, and just see. And I think. I think that sometimes there are things that because they're, they're popular at the moment or because they, they fit it, we think, ah, well, that's, that's obviously just bad. And yet, there's, there's, it's the beginning of something uh, that's going to happen later on that we ought to be really thankful uh, for and we ought to cultivate and, and be grateful for as well. I, I, would, I would say one really quick thing was that, is that I think we don't really want to have to work for our art very hard. And I think that's kind of unfortunate. I, I don't know if you guys have ever had that experience. Like if you, I remember watching a movie with Jason Gray, this friend of mine, songwriter friend of mine, and we both hated it, mm-hmm. right? We went, we watched it. We rented it one night when he was in town. We were so excited about seeing it. And we were like, that was a giant waste of time. And the next morning at breakfast, we're sitting there sipping coffee. And I was like, yeah, I remember that one part when this happened. And at the end of that conversation, we both agreed it was a fantastic movie. Just because what we was had, in your coffee? Oh yeah, <laughs> really, really. It was because we had to do the work. We had to like do a little bit of lifting and talk it through, and then realize that what was really going on was brilliant, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think some of the greatest works of literature or painting, like if you guys ever been to a museum and you see a painting and you're like ah, but then you hear the docent talking to the group and you lean in and they start pointing out this and this and this and this and you kind of look at it with new eyes and you see, oh, that's wonderful. I really think we miss out on a lot because Mm -hmm. the church sometimes is unwilling to look uh, deeper than what's just on the surface. Maybe the real beautiful redemptive work of art is something that's in subtext, right? Mm -hmm. But And so we talk about how, oh, these movies are bad, but then we go and watch a Bruckheimer film that is just noise, right? Uh, and sit there like a bump on a log and go, well, oh, that was fun. It was entertainment. What like, I feel like we should raise our own bars a little bit and look for something meaningful and deep. Yeah, there's a show on NPR, a film review show called Film Spotting. One of the hosts of the show is Josh Larson, who's a friend of mine in Chicago, who's also a believer. Um, he just wrote a book called Movies Are Prayers. Mm. And his contention is, even for a non-Christian filmmaker... 
if they're honest, they're wrestling with concepts of who am I and why am I here? And he says that every one of those expressions is like a psalm. So he goes through, he comes up with, I think, nine different categories of biblical prayers and then finds five or six secular movies that fit each category. And I'm reading it, and it's like, I wouldn't have thought of any of that. You are so much deeper than I am, but now I want to go watch these movies. It's like, so you, you, they saw that in that? I got to go it's and and just, it's, a, it's a language that you start to learn yeah, it and is. recognize. And then you'll watch a movie two years later and, and you'll recognize certain moves or, or things that they are. It's a, it's, it's a language. It's a, it's, yeah. Each art has its own language. And so once you learn the language, you start noticing Christ showing up even more than, he was, than you thought he was. Well, we've talked a lot about different resources. Parents could, uh, different movies parents can check out. But I wanted to ask one more question, if I could, Dr. Moore. To parents new to the conversation of creativity, resources, just now beginning to think about how to disciple their kids with the arts. There's a lot of great stuff out there, talking about Petra and how they, it influenced you as a kid. I think how grateful I am for like what's in the Bible and how it's beginning to shape, or it's shaped my kid's view. And hand in glove with the Jesus Storybook Bible, all these resources now that people we're pouring themselves in that it's quality and it's craft where it's telling the whole story of the Bible. My, it's shaping my kids. And since I mentioned them, I've told Andrew many times how my kids, my daughter, the 16-year-old, I'll go upstairs and I'll hear his records playing in my daughter's room. And I just know she's singing along to the truth of the gospel. I'm just so grateful. So what are, in the light of all this, what are the essentials? What are things that you would tell parents what are the essentials for discipleship? And how does a parent begin, especially if they're just thinking about creativity and the arts for the first time? Well, I think one of the things is not to, uh, not to put too much of, a, of an expectation burden upon yourself or upon your, your children. So I think, I think Andrew's exactly right about the piano, uh, for instance, in, in his home. I think there are sometimes uh, even Christian parents who realize how They've been lacking in beauty and in creativity who then want to turn around and say, therefore, uh, we're going to make sure that we're, you know, you're, you're, you're doing violin lessons now and you're doing uh, everything uh, in a way that can make that burdensome upon a, a child and upon a family. Know your, know your family's story. Know the, know the diversity of gifts uh, that, that are happening there. Pay attention to that. And, and know when you have a child who's uh, captivated by poetry or when you have a child who's captivated by song or one who's captivated by film. And know your children's, uh, know your children's story languages uh, enough to be able to, to speak to that. And that takes just knowing your kids. And sometimes you're going to have... Uh, you're going to have kids who have, have different sorts of languages and, and personalities there, and that means that you, you get to, you don't have to, but you get to sort of be multilingual uh, when you're there talking to them. And so I think don't, don't put a lot of judgment upon yourself. Uh, try things out and then pull back and say, that's not, that doesn't resonate with my kids, but something else might. And then also knowing, uh, knowing people who can come in and say, have you... Have you thought about, have you heard this song or have you uh, thought about this poetry or have you thought about this film um, and build each other up that way? Mm-hmm. Be in community. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're out of time, but uh, would you guys join me in just thanking this awesome panel? 
Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with a friend. And join us next week as we listen to a discussion on the future of pro-life policy.